Picture stepping out of Queen's Park subway station. With the long, dreary winter behind you, and with the long-awaited sign of spring, you finally see the cherry blossoms bloom on U of T's campus. You can hear the mixture of birds chirping and the hustle and bustle of downtown Toronto. You can smell the wood-based paper of the books that are left behind in Robart's library after the exam period has wrapped up. And you can taste your freshly brewed hot coffee while the heat of your drink transfers some of its comforting warmth to your hand. Our senses define how we interact with the rest of the world and enjoy the little moments in our day-to-day lives, whether we realize it or not. Understanding the senses allows us to understand ourselves better, and as it turns out, three Nobel Prizes have been awarded in the past for sensory research, with two Nobel Prizes awarded in 1967 and 1981 for discoveries in the visual system, and one in 2004 for clarifying how our senses of smell works at the molecular level. This trend has continued, and just last year, the 2021 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was jointly awarded to Dr. David Julius and Dr. Artem Padaputin for the discoveries of receptors for temperature and touch. I'm Michelle. And I'm Elizabeth. Welcome to episode 107 of Raw Talk Podcast. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. Our first guest is Dr. Abdel Al-Manira, a professor of neuroscience at Karolinska Institute in Sweden and a current member of the Nobel Committee for the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. He told us more about how the Nobel Prize Committee functions and the process behind appointing a Nobel Prize winner each year. The Nobel work is carried by the Nobel Assembly at the Karolinska Institute, which includes 50 professors at the Karolinska Institute from different fields. And then there is the Nobel Assembly is like the jury of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. There is a Nobel Committee, which is the working body that does the preparatory work for the evaluating the nominations. And I have been part of the Nobel Assembly since 2016. The Nobel Committee, I've been a member of the Nobel Committee since 2000. Our work basically is to evaluate all the nominations that come in. All former Nobel Prize winners have the right to nominate. All professors in medicine in the Scandinavian universities have the right to nominate. And then there are different academies and different institutions that are invited to nominate potential candidates. Usually there are like this year, there are over 800 nominations. And we go through each of them, depending on the field of expertise of the different members of the Nobel Committee, they have to go through the nominations and evaluate them, the first screen. And then we go in in depth in those that are really the nominations that are have passed the cut, if you will, of potential, which include significant discoveries that might be contenders for the prize. Basically, our sole criterion is to identify a discovery that has either opened doors or helped us think in in a really 
about a, a problem in a novel way. It's really we're looking for a paradigm shift in discovery. And that could be for medical practice, for basically directly related to a specific disease or just a discovery that is related to a physiological question that has not been known before and has been solved. Alfred Nobel was a Swedish scientist in the 1800s, and he is the founder of the Nobel Prizes as we know today. According to his will, Alfred Nobel stated that his entire remaining estate should be given as prizes to those who, during the preceding year, have conferred the greatest benefit to humankind. Dr. Al Manira elaborated on how Alfred Nobel shaped the existence of the Nobel Prize. All we do is to follow Alfred Nobel's will. It is in the will, it's given that the prize for physiology or medicine is made by professors at the Karolinska Institute. And for physics, chemistry is made by the Royal Academy, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. And the Nobel Prize of Peace is made by the Norwe- a committee of the, at the Norwegian Parliament. And the Nobel Prize for Literature is by the Swedish Academy. In his will, basically what he has stated is that the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine should be awarded for a discovery that would have been a benefit for humankind. So our criteria is very narrow. We need to have a very distinct discovery that has opened the door and helped us understand a key problem in a new way. That's the basic upon which we we work and we evaluate the nominations. And I think the Nobel Foundation has opened, there is a lot of very important outreach program to explain to the public, to involve the public in discussions. There is really important to have this dialogue with the public, but not for the selection, but about how their perception of the Nobel Prize and how also educate people who want to know more about the Nobel Prize. So well, I think now with the social media, people are much more engaged and we see a lot of interaction. So, for example, when the prize is, is really announced, there are Twitters that are sent by the Nobel Foundation so people can directly engage. And also the Nobel Prize winners, they also are engaged with the public in a different way worldwide, not only locally. I think that is a good way to show and also that could serve as an incitement for encouragement for people to engage in the wind science because we need to encourage the youngsters to do science, to follow scientific principles and also have a scientific mind because that's very important, not only for individuals, but also for society. We asked Dr. El Manura to expand on the outreach efforts of the Nobel Foundation. We have the committee writes just that. It's very organized in a way that we write the, the press release that is made for the Nobel Prize of each year. And then there is an extended overview of the specific area that has been awarded. But then the Nobel Foundation, there are a lot of discussions. There are a lot of programs that are made by the Nobel Foundation for each of the prizes. For example, on the same day, there is an interview with the prize winners, which doesn't relate to their research, but talk about their daily lives, their family lives, and how they have perceived the prize. And then later on, we have students from different regions of the world that are invited to Stockholm to participate in the Nobel, what we call the Nobel Week during the Nobel ceremony. And there are different workshops and discussion groups, and which involves also 
previous Nobel Prize winners and also different Nobel committees. So it is an active way for the Nobel Foundation to reach out and also disseminate the knowledge that has been awarded Nobel Prize. The road to a Nobel Prize win is often a very long one, even after making impactful discoveries. The first seminal paper published by Dr. David Julius's lab identifying a family of temperature-sensing receptors was published over 20 years before Dr. Julius and Dr. Padaputian were jointly awarded the prize in 2021. We asked Dr. El Manira why the recognition and awarding processes frequently take so long. In general terms, I cannot go into the details of our discussions, but in general terms, one is the discovery of a significant height. Is it transformative? Second, have any other discoveries been made before? Are we sure that this is a really unique and transformative? Third, are all people who have contributed have been identified? And I can add a fourth, can we combine with others? I mean, can we enlarge the area to encompass other more discoveries within the same framework and then to have even a larger impact of a Nobel Prize, for example. Like this year, it could be only for heat or temperature sensing, but it is also for touch. And then it becomes even a combination which is even bigger than each of them alone. And this takes time because each year, I mean, to evaluate each of these, it takes a long time to come to a clear conclusion and not making any mistake or missing some important people who have made really key contributions. The research is an incremental process. So we build up on previous knowledge and we want to make sure that the previous knowledge has been evaluated in depth. This prize for this year or last year has been given for a fundamental discovery about a physiological question rather than a medical price that is given for something that is already applicable in the clinics. To get a better idea about the science behind the Nobel Prize win, we spoke with Dr. Rose Hill, who is a postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Dr. Artem Padaputin at Scripps Research. But before digging into her and the lab's research, we asked her about the experience of finding out that their lab had been awarded the Nobel Prize. So I started there in 2019, just a few months before COVID, and we were all incredibly, I mean, pleasantly so, but incredibly surprised. So being on the West Coast and the award being in Europe, we were actually awoken by a group text from a lab member at around 2 or 3 a.m. I don't quite remember. I was still sleeping. And it just said, check the news, check this website. And that's how we found out. And it was just such a crazy whirlwind day. It was actually very wonderful. So Ardem had organized a little champagne toast with previous lab members. So who were all across the world. So for example, Bertrand Coast, the lead author on the discovery of piezo paper, he was able to attend that from France, uh, where he has a lab right now currently. So it was really nice to see all these old and new faces together. Of course, Scripps has had a number of celebrations since, but we've all been extremely, extremely happy for him and for everyone in the lab who contributed to that work. So in my PhD, I primarily focused on how our somatosensory systems, this is the component of our peripheral nervous system that allows us to detect touch, pain, itch, temperature. I focused on how endogenous molecules made by our own bodies contribute to inflammatory pain and itch by interacting with our somatosensory system. 
and I fell in love with somato sensation there. And I took that interest to my postdoc in Ardem Paraputian's lab, where I now have not only study itch and pain, I'm still working on itch actually there, but I now study the sensory systems that detect both internal and external environments. Your research on itch sounds fascinating. What is it and why does it happen? Yeah, itch is one of the least known somatosensory modalities. I think in the past decade or so, there has been a lot more attention given to it. But interestingly, like along with chronic pain, itch has an extreme clinical burden. Over 10% of people will experience chronic itch at some point in their lifetime. And chronic itch is not treatable with these common over-the-counter remedies like antihistamines. So we know it's not due to allergies. It's due to the complex interplay of the nervous and immune systems, the skin as well. And one thing that we and others were working on too is how is the nervous system affected in chronic itch? We know in pain that the nervous system actually gets altered, and this is what drives a persistent pain state. But whether such changes can also drive a persistent itch state is also unknown. One of the itch projects I was most excited about in grad school was we took a step back and we used this mouse model of chronic itch. And we looked at what genes were expressed in the skin and sensory neurons across the development of this model. So you can start with a healthy mouse and within seven to 10 days, you have a mouse with full-blown eczema or atopic dermatitis. We were able to see changes in the sensory neurons as early as two days into the model. So that was telling us that something is going on where the nervous system is directly getting affected here. Later in the model, in less than a week, we saw profound changes in the spinal cord, indicating that there might be this persistent itch state developing even within a week of having itch develop. From there, we had all these candidate genes we were interested in following up on. And we took that story in the direction of studying the interaction between this particular immune cell type, the neutrophil, and the sensory neuron. But definitely there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other signaling pathways going on there that are extremely important for the development of chronic itch. So I think we're really just scraping the surface here. And as the tools continue to develop, we have better models. I think we'll continue to learn a lot more about chronic itch. Your PhD supervisor, Dr. Bautista, worked on star-nosed moles, right? Can you tell us about what makes them so special? Yes, that was actually one of the projects that contributed to some of the things I worked on in my thesis work. It was an interesting idea. Essentially, the star-nosed moles rely on their sense of touch. They are constantly looking for food in the ground, little insects and other things they can find to eat. They're extremely good foragers despite having poor eyesight, and they rely on this specialized sensory organ that's on the nose called the star, and it has these little specialized tactile structures called Imer's organs that are very densely innervated by light touch receptors. And so what Dr. Batista and her colleagues, including Ken Catania, who's the star-nosed mole expert, thought to do was to take sensory neurons from the nerves innervating the star and compare what genes were expressed there um, compared with the neurons that innervate the rest of the body of the mole. So we know that the rest of the mole is not particularly sensitive. And by doing so, they actually pulled out many genes that were involved in mechanosensation, including piezos. 
And so it was interesting. They had done this work before the initial piezo discoveries were made. And so they didn't really know what to make of that. But then when the piezos came out as these mechanosensitive ion channels, that all kind of came together. The mole, I think there's still a lot there in those experiments. It's just, you cannot do genetic experiments in a mole or many other things that one would like to do to test these hypotheses. But I think there were a lot of very interesting discoveries and hypotheses that came out of that data set. Before we dive deeper into the topic, could you please define some terms like somatosensation, proprioception, receptors, and ion channels? Yes. Maybe let's start with somatosensations. Somatosensation is the detection of touch or gentle mechanical stimuli, pain, which could be either a harsh mechanical, thermal, or chemical stimuli, itch, which can be caused by a number of things, but is really any stimulus that causes one to feel itchy um, or temperature. Um, somatosensation also encompasses proprioception. So proprioceptive neurons are somatosensory neurons. That proprioception is the sense of balance and how we detect our limbs in space. And so this is uh, distinct from the balance system that's in the inner ear. So this is primarily mediated by uh, proprioceptive neurons that target um, muscle fibers or muscle spindles. And mechanoreception is interesting. If you imagine a Venn diagram, I'd say mechanoreception overlaps with a part of somatosensation, but can also be distinct from that. So mechanoreception is how the peripheral nervous system can detect responses to any mechanical stimulus, anything that causes physical force. But there are many non-neuronal cells that are not connected to the somatosensory system that are mechanosensitive. For example, the, all the cells lining your blood vessels uh, can respond to mechanical force. And so they are mechanosensitive cells. There are some ion channels can also be receptors and some receptors are ion channels. And we generally think of receptors as having a particular ligand, which is usually another protein, a chemical, small molecule, even an ion. But piezos are interesting in that they don't appear to be receptors for any particular chemical. We don't really have a known chemical stimulus for them. They seem to be just simply gated by mechanical force. And so when I say gated, I mean that the ion channels will open in response to certain stimuli. So if it's a receptor, maybe when the channel is presented with glutamate or some other neurotransmitter, the ion channel will open in response. And so more generally speaking, a receptor could be any type of protein. It doesn't have to be an ion channel. In neurobiology, we like to think of most of the important stuff happening at the plasma membrane, the external surface of the cell. And so many of the important receptors for neurotransmitters sit in the plasma membrane where they can receive information. And so there are many different types of receptors, receptor tyrosine kinases, G-protein coupled receptors, and all of these can serve to integrate external stimuli and transduce these into intracellular signaling cascades. And in the case of an ion channel like piezo, the intracellular signaling it causes is often a change in membrane potential and an increase in intracellular calcium. And calcium is an ion that's a very important signaling molecule in the cell. So we think a lot of what piezo is doing is through increasing intracellular calcium. And that also goes for trip channels as well, which are also cation channels that let sodium and calcium into the cell. Now that we have that background, how does the body differentiate between touch sensation and temperature sensation? 
it's actually among these sensory modalities. So temperature is a modality, touch is a modality. We call these subdivisions of somatic sensation modalities. For example, the modality of touch, there are very specialized somatosensory nerve endings that are in the skin. So they can wrap around the hair follicles and detect gentle deflections of the hair follicle. They can innervate these specialized cellular structures in the skin called Merkel cell neurite complexes that help us to detect dynamic touch, for example, reading Braille. And there are several other kinds of touch mediating nerve endings that mediate other facets of it. But essentially what you have is there are mechanosensitive ion channels, predominantly piezo-2, for example, that are in these nerve endings when the plasma membrane of these nerve endings are mechanically deformed by a brush or a touch or a pinch or feeling a rough surface that will cause these piezo ion channels to open. And when they open, you'll get a bunch of positively charged cations influxing into the cell, and that will increase the membrane potential of the cell. So you can imagine a cell is kind of like a battery and neurons are like little circuits. And that will depolarize the cell and allow it to fire an action potential that will travel all the way up the nerve fiber. And this is still in the primary sensory neuron. And that signal will be carried to the spinal cord. And in the spinal cord, there are multiple pathways different modalities can take to the brain. So for example, light touch will take a different path to the brain than noxious temperature. And even some stimuli, like a noxious temperature, for example, can activate a reflex that's independent of the brain. And so in the spinal cord, there's a lot of pre-processing that goes on before the signal reaches the somatosensory cortex. And that's where all this information leads to the perception of touch or the perception of temperature or these other modalities. And pain, for example, does go to a number of other brain regions that we're still understanding its role in the kind of negative percept of pain. That's very interesting. So can you tell us, how do our bodies differentiate between different types of touch? Are there different signaling pathways that are involved between soft touch and noxious touch? That's the question, right? And that's what we're still trying to figure out. So I'll start with the molecules, the end I'm, I'm most comfortable with. So we know that piezo-2 is required for the detection of light touch. So humans, there are humans who have null mutations in piezo-2. They cannot sense light touch but they can still sense a pinprick or a strong pinch. So we know that there is something else that is mediating the detection of harsh mechanical stimuli. We don't know if it's one ion channel. We don't know if it's 20 ion channels. We don't even know if it's an ion channel. We would like to think it is. And so on that molecular level, there is still some uncertainty with regards to that modality. And then on the more systems neuroscience level, we don't exactly know. We have some idea of how harsh versus light stimuli are encoded in the spinal cord, but we don't yet have a full working model of that to the point where we can say, yes, we fully understand how pain versus light touch are encoded. We're still kind of putting together these snippets of information here and there from doing these very complicated experiments in mice where people are trying to record from neurons in the spinal cord or the brain of a live mouse in response to it getting brushed or pinched or some other stimulus. Maybe 10 years down the road, we'll have a much better answer for you. Your current lab is credited with the discovery of the piezo family of mechanosensitive receptors. How exactly were they discovered? 
yeah, the whole approach that was undertaken in the lab, you know, at the time it seemed almost impossible and to take many years of work, but at some point you can't just rely on your intuition. And sometimes in science, you have to just brute force problems to get the answers. And so what Bertrand Coast, who was leading the project and, and our dem thought to do was to take a library of every gene that was hypothesized to make a protein that was in the plasma membrane of the cell. So a transmembrane protein and make something called an siRNA against it. So that basically knocks down the gene expression and gets rid of that genes, that protein's activity in the cell by knocking down the gene. And so they took a mechanosensitive cell line. It's this N2A cell. It's a neuroblastoma cell line that is immortal. It lives in culture. It's very easy to work with. And they already knew that this cell had these beautiful mechanically activated currents and culture. And so they wanted to figure out what was the protein or ion channel, since they knew it was causing currents that mediated these mechanosensitive currents. And so one by one, they knocked down each gene from their list in the cell and poked these cells while doing electrophysiological recordings from them. And so these are very difficult experiments, very low throughput, but eventually they ended up not having to test their entire library, which was great. But eventually they found piezo one which was at the time called FAM38A before it had been discovered. But when they knocked down this gene, they lost the mechanosensitive currents in the N2A cells. I can't recall off the top of my head, but I believe it's in the order of thousands. They actually got quite lucky. I believe they only had to go through like several dozen or hundred candidates or so before they hit piezos. Were the TRIP family of temperature-sensitive receptors identified in a similar way? Yeah. So the trip channels were discovered in a way that was similar. Well, actually the function of the trip channel. So trip channels, it's important to know that they were already known from flies before David Julius had done the seminal work on um, the capsaicin receptor. It was already known that trip was a channel that existed. The capsaicin receptor was identified through another screening approach, similar to the piezo discovery approach. However, what they did was they took basically every gene that was expressed in a sensory neuron and expressed them in progressively smaller and smaller groups of genes in a cell line that did not respond to capsaicin. And they were able to look by looking at the amount of calcium that was driven into the cell by capsaicin, whether or not putting those DRG genes into the cells caused a capsaicin response. And so by successively paring it down to smaller and smaller groups of genes, they were able to identify this TRIP-V1 ion channel was the capsaicin receptor. And from there, that approach was scalable to these other TRIP channels. And so TRIP-M8, the menthol receptor, which also responds to cold was identified, and TRIP-A1, the irritant receptor, and the response to many different chemicals, including mustard oil, wasabi, was also identified. TRIP-A1 in particular, I have a closer relationship to that because that's what Diana worked on in her postdoctoral work and what she brought to her lab at UC Berkeley. There, the Batista lab uncovered that it played an essential role not only in irritant sensing and pain sensation, but also in itch. We and others are still working on unraveling the role of TRIP-A1 in chronic itch and airway inflammation and all these inflammatory disorders that cause both irritation and itch. And we think that it's playing a really important role there. What are the clinical implications and outcomes of understanding these systems better? 
Yeah, I think on one end, how can we help patients with these very rare deficiency syndromes? I mean, that's something people are working on with haptic technologies and other kind of technology interfaces that would allow someone with a piezo 2 deficiency syndrome to feel or experience a semblance of touch, maybe in a different way. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we know that these piezos are essential for a number of biological functions. And if we were able to identify actual chemical modulators of piezos, then maybe we could use these as therapeutics to alter piezo function in a way that could, for example, alleviate pain hypersensitivity. Since we know piezo 2, it's not the noxious pain sensor, but it is involved in pain hypersensitivity and allodynia specifically, which is type of hypersensitivity. And so the real challenge here is a problem of scale and screening. And how do we identify modulators for these huge proteins that aren't readily amenable to traditional pharmacological approaches? And so that's something a lot of people are very interested in. Yeah, hopefully that will give some insights into future clinical implications for piezos. Chronic pain can have a large burden on the quality of life and mental health of people. As Dr. Hill mentioned, one of the hopes of understanding these systems at a cellular level is to reduce this burden. Next, we spoke with Dr. Robert Bonin, an assistant professor of the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto. He is also the Canada Research Chair in Sensory Plasticity and Reconsolidation. Dr. Bonin's research concerns the molecular mechanisms of pathological pain and cognitive disorders. Here, he is explaining the biological and mechanistic descriptions of pain and why we feel pain. There's the why of pain, and then there's the how of pain. And I am a basic scientist. Uh, We study mechanisms of sensory processing, of sensory plasticity, or how perception or response to different types of stimuli can change, depending on, say, plasticity within the nervous system. So... Our work looks much more explicitly at the how do we feel pain part. The why part I find actually quite interesting because any organism that moves in an environment, for example, has to have some way to detect potentially damaging aspects of the environment or threats in the environment. Even, say, single-celled organisms have to be able to respond to, say, increasing pH or changes in acidity or nutrients in the environment, for example, and respond accordingly. Fish swimming around have to be able to detect, say, rocks so that we don't repeatedly run into them. This also applies to us as well. So any organism that moves in an environment, it seems necessary to have some sensory system that detects damage. The pain component of it is more complicated than the sensory processing. Pain is fundamentally an emotional experience. It is aversive. It has, it's generated in response to perceived or actual threatening stimuli for example, and it has that strong emotional component to it. So there are sort of two separate aspects of it when we think about how do we feel pain and then why do we feel pain. And the how side is a very interesting aspect from the scientific perspective. So I guess when you ask at the mechanistic level for pain, so coming back to our sense of touch, so I was defining touch as some force applied to the periphery, for example, but when it gets to as we say, threatening levels or damaging levels, say really high heat that could cause a burn or intense pinching type force, it activates another subset of specialized receptors in our skin that respond selectively to these kinds of sensory stimuli. And when those pathways get activated, we call this process nociception. 
So the sensory process associated with pain. So when this nociceptive processing is activated, that is what initiates the sensory process that we associate with pain. Not all pain has to have a defined stimulus. It's a very important aspect that pain is, as we said, the individual emotional experience of pain itself, which can be in some way separated from the physical stimulation. What is nociception and how is it different from pain? Yes, and this is a very important distinction and something that I will be honest, when I first started studying pain, took a little bit of thinking about to get my head around and something that we continue to emphasize in our classes and courses that cover pain-related material at the University of Toronto. So nociception is fundamentally the sensory processing component of pain. You could almost view it as absent of the conscious awareness of pain. It doesn't have that higher level processing. So when we think about do we do nociception or do we have nociception without conscious experience? I think we do. I think we can define it in terms of we blink often. And maybe a good example of this is coming back to blinking, certain genetic disorders such as chronic insensitivity to pain. So these individuals can't or do not experience pain. Now they have some mutation which prevents this. And in these unfortunate instances, there can be a lot of peripheral damage associated beyond what you would expect, such as you know, putting a hand on a stove and not moving it. Uh, they often also suffer from corneal damage because they don't have the same blinking response. There's joint injury because whether we appreciate it or not, we tend to move or fidget, for example, when we've been in one position for too long. There can have that nociceptive component, so the activation of these specialized fibers, which cause some behavioral change or postural change or blinking, for example, or some reflex. And this can actually happen at a subconscious level. We don't necessarily have to be aware that this is happening. But the nociceptive processing does trigger these sort of defensive or adaptive types of behaviors. When we're consciously aware of the injury, for example, or this nociceptive process, this is when it becomes pain. This is when pain is fundamentally aversive. So it is an unpleasant sensory experience. And I guess to repeat this, that the pain is the actual emotional and sensory experience associated with the overall negative aspect, I suppose, of that sensory information. So pain is an emotional experience. Nociception is the sensory uh, processing component. Why does our brain perceive some touch stimuli as more painful than other types of stimuli? So we've touched on this a little, touched on this, pun not intended, <laughs> a little bit in terms of we can have an intensity component. So I mean, the difference between warmth and burning pain. So this would activate different subsets of spe specialized uh, receptors, for example, in the skin. So when they activate the high threshold heat receptors in the skin, these activate the nociceptive pathways, which then we perceive as burning pain, as opposed to warmth, which activate another subset of, say, sensory afferents, we call them, often do not activate this pain or nociceptive pathway. This threshold can change, though, and I think most of us have experienced this in terms of, say, after a sunburn, when normal warm water, for example, in the shower can be perceived as scalding hot water, even though it's the same temperature we used to find pleasant. So that's because of the inflammation associated with the sunburn has now sensitized some of these thermal sensing pathways so that they're now activated by at lower temperatures. So these nociceptive pathways are now being activated by temperatures that were normally perceived as not painful. So we would call that thermal allodynia. Perception of a stimulus as painful or noxious when it was normally innocuous or non-painful previously. Inflammation, injury can cause these kinds of changes. These changes can occur in the periphery. They can occur further along 
the nervous system. They can occur, uh, for example, changes in the spinal cord or even changes in brain connectivity that can amplify or modify how we perceive sensations. Why do different people experience the same pain sensations so differently? I think it's going to be maybe a higher level answer here. I think it has a lot to do with this idea of the subjective experience of pain. How we experience pain has a lot to do with our prior experience with pain. I mean, even when you go to a doctor, they'll often ask, um, can you rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst pain you've ever experienced, 0 being no pain at all. And of course, these anchors are going to be different for different people, people who have delivered uh, childbirth, say, without um, any sort of analgesia, may have a very different rating of 10 than, say, myself, who's fortunately, knock on wood, not, say, broken any bones or had any uh, major injuries in my life. So the prior experience, I think, will very much change how we respond to pain. On the other hand, it's also the expectations of pain and what the pain may mean to them. And I think elite athletes are a really interesting example of this. So we often think of elite athletes as forcing through pain, ignoring pain, working through it, and they do. They can train very hard. They can train you know, right at the physical limits, basically, where most people would normally stop because it's uh, um, maybe aversive or uncomfortable to keep pushing through or to keep training at certain levels. So on one hand, they're less sensitive to, say, aversive input or painful input. On the other hand, they can also be considered sometimes hypersensitive to pain because what it may mean. So if they have ankle injuries, for example, this has been documented in a number of different soccer players, for example, they may perceive that ankle injury as being more severe than it is because of what it may mean for their future training or their future ability to perform. So it may be a light pain or a nagging pain, but it may indicate that, okay, this could become a very debilitating injury and they become much more afraid to exercise on that. So that pain has a very different meaning to them and how much attention or how much information it would carry can depend greatly on our expectations of it, our perception of the pain, and of course, we're, what we're doing, our day-to-day -day activities. Have you ever gone to the dentist and to distract yourself from the pain in your mouth, you perhaps pinch the skin on your hand? Dr. Bonin explains why we feel different types of pain and how distracting from one pain using other pain can be used. So that's a really interesting example. We would call that an example of counter-irritation. So this is actually, yes, it's an accepted way to distract from either a localized insult that could be happening or a localized injury. So I think that there's a few levels to it. At the biological level, for example, this counter-irritation can enact or activate a process called diffuse noxious inhibitory control, or DINIC. So this is input from the brain descending down along the spinal cord that can actually suppress uh, nociceptive processing. This can happen when you have, say, pain at multiple sites. You'll get more of this activation. So the counter-irritation can activate this, but it can also distract. And again, I think the idea of the you are pinching yourself, there is that element more of control associated with it. And I think that changes the experience as well about, yes, it's noxious stimulation, but it has a very different quality than seeing uncontrolled injury. For example, like the dentist drilling where you just have to basically sit there and <laughs> suppress any sort of defensive reflexes. I, I think that the two of those are very different qualities in terms of the experience of pain. So there's some really excellent research on this by Dr. Anatadio, also in the Faculty of Pharmacy, who's done a lot of research on vaccine hesitancy and overcoming 
the fear and the negative experience with vaccines and even with their own kids. Um, I have uh, two kids, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. And when they were eligible for their vaccines against COVID, we also had to, the same idea, employ a lot of these heavy-handed mecha- <laughs> mechanisms of distraction, tablets, games, everything that we could do, positive reinforcement afterwards, um, a lot of these approaches that we can do. That's exactly what you were suggesting. What, what these interventions do is change the experience overall. You can do it retroactively. You can make it seem less aversive by creating a positive outcome at the end. And I think this has a lot to do with now modifying the actual memory of the experience itself. And this is getting closer now to sort of the heart of our own research. We study this interaction or changes in the interaction of neurons, the connectivity of the neurons in the spinal cord that control this sensory processing. So where you can have input from say the touch receptors, the innocuous touch receptors are the neurons that they activate are very close to the neurons that are activated by sensory afferents that are activated by noxious stimulation, and there has to be some interaction between them. And there's crosstalk between them. And this is um, basically the fundamental aspect of a wonderful theory, which was used to sort of as a framework to understand how sensory processing can occur in the spinal cord called the gate theory of pain. Two great Canadians, uh, Pat Wall and Ronald Melzack contributed to this, so this went over a few different decades. And the idea here is that, yes, you do have this interaction between the processes so that when you have, say, when you stub your toe or pinch your finger, I guess you may rub that site of injury so that uh, touch sensation can actually dampen down the nociceptive processing. So that's one aspect that's enabled by this gate theory as well. And it's also used to explain some of that crosstalk about uh, touch allodynia, as we mentioned, or something like gentle stroking can feel painful uh, in the case of, say, a sunburn. Your lab is exploring new molecular pathways to directly reverse cellular changes that contribute to pathological pain. How do you go about doing this? Oh, I'm very happy to talk about how we're investigating this. Yes, I didn't want to go on too much of a tangent on this, but I'm very happy to explain sort of the framework that we use uh, to reverse some of these changes. There's a phenomenon that's been known in psychology fields called reconsolidation for a number of decades. And what this essentially entails is that, so when we encode a memory, for example, uh, ear conditioning, where animals are taught to associate a shock with a certain context, when we re-expose the animal, so to measure the strength of that memory, you will place the animal back in a similar context and measure how much they freeze as a measure of fear. What effectively happens there is that initial association forms between networks and cells of the brain uh, underlying that fear memory. They undergo a process called consolidation. So basically there's a protein synthesis dependent phenomenon such that we have this persistent strengthening of connections between neurons. And this forms fundamentally the, the memory trace. Effectively, once we have this memory trace has been consolidated, that's not necessarily stable forever. The memory trace has to be able to be updated uh, to incorporate new information. And one way that this is studied is basically through that reactivation process. So when the animal is exposed, re-exposed to that context to measure freezing behavior, that reactivation process itself is not a passive process. What actually appears to happen is that that memory trace basically undergoes a process which we could consider sort of a turnover 
of the memory trace. There's protein degradation and there's protein synthesis that occurs. In effect, what happens is that memory undergoes a change such that it can be modified. And we say that this under, the memory becomes labile or modifiable. And that's what's enabled by this protein degradation process. And as it resynthesizes new proteins to account for any modification or restabilizes, it reconsolidates. So we call this reconsolidation. So we don't know the exact function, I suppose, of this in terms of memory, but it does seem to be important for, say, strengthening memories, potentially weakening memories, or allowing them to incorporate new information to account for, say, changes in the environment when that reactivation occurred. So this has been very well studied in terms of memory processing, but if we view this again at the level of, sort of basic CNS function, we say this is a fundamental property of the nervous system. We do know there's parallels between learning and memory and changes in the spinal cord, plastic changes in the spinal cord associated with pain. Well, now we can say, well, can we use this idea of reconsolidation to reactivate and basically render that, say, if we call it a memory this pain engram or memory trace of pain, can we render it labile and then basically degrade it? So we use this, basically the same sort of paradigm where we can you know, apply capsaicin, we cause our activity dependent changes, and we reapply capsaicin again the same way, and we reactivate those pathways, we find that those plastic changes in the spinal cord do indeed become labile. And if we, for example, block protein synthesis, we can stop that reconsolidation process, that labile memory trace uh, basically never recovers. And effectively what happens when we study this at a behavioral or at a synaptic level is that potentiation, that strengthening of connections between cells basically becomes degraded. We no longer see that pain hypersensitivity or that mechanical hypersensitivity associated with the capsaicin injection. This serves as sort of a proof of concept that we can now begin to use these sort of fundamental properties of nervous system plasticity to hopefully begin to selectively target and modify those changes associated with pathological pain. So some of the work that we're doing now is examining how can we selectively activate this process? Can we basically make it druggable? Do we know how to induce this um, without undergoing the process of blocking protein synthesis or re-administering capsaicin? We're interested in how broadly can we use this? Is it uh, selective to just, say, capsaicin-induced changes? You know, early work suggests no. This has some indications for inflammatory changes in mechanical sensitivity associated with inflammation or nerve injury. And this may actually turn out to be sort of a general use tool. Pain is a very interesting topic, and we could fill another episode with a conversation that we had with Dr. Bonin. If you're interested in learning more, you can check out our show's notes for the link to Dr. Bonin and the UFT Center for the Study of Pain's work. We've also covered pain in episode 17 on neuroimaging and chronic pain with Dr. Karen Davis. There are still many big questions that remain in the field, and Dr. Hill summarized a few of them for us. I think having a better handle on what might be the noxious mechanotransducer ion channel or channels is important. I also think that having a better idea of exactly what sensory neurons are encoding which stimuli and how that's getting processed in the spinal cord will be an extremely important question. Because so I think right now we have some idea, we have these like genetically labeled types of sensory neurons that we think correspond to specific modalities. But only very recently has there been a way to functionally test that in a live mouse. And I think that 
as we continue to do those sorts of experiments, that's going to give us even more insights and possibly we will learn we were wrong about certain things or not wrong, but just part of science, like cyclically revising your model of how things work. And I think the field is kind of primed for another sort of revision of how we think about things as we've progressed and gotten these tools that are already being used in other areas of neuroscience in the brain. As always, a very special thanks to our guests, Dr. Abdel El Manira, Dr. Rose Hill, and Dr. Rob Bonin for their valuable insights. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by myself and Michelle. Junaid, Swapna, and Yagnesh helped conduct the interviews. Nina and Angela helped develop content. Anukriti was our audio engineer, and Yagnesh was our executive producer. Tune in again in two weeks for our next episode. Until next time. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. 